0: And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Balhazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son or sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead." For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Gesher, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Gesher and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom, because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Then on to Second Samuel, chapter fifteen verses 1 to 31, which is on page 266, two years after Absalom has returned to Jerusalem. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, "From what city are you?" And when he said, "Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel," Absalom would say to him, "See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you." Then Absalom would say, "O oh, that I were judge in the land." then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel." And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite. David's counselor from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house and all his servants passed by him and all the Cherithites and all the Pelethites and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But it I answered the king. As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Itai, "Go then, pass on." So Itai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook, the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes back from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators of Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And finally, Second Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 to 14 which is on page 268 of the Bibles. When day King David came to Bahirim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people. And all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood." Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road. While Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself.
1: Actually, my biggest health warning as we go into this passage is not about the length of it. It's about how horrific some of the events we're about to witness are. This is a passage about the downfall of David and his family. And it is a descent into more and more sin and evil and suffering for his family and for the kingdom. So it is going to be grim, I'm afraid. This isn't, despite the weather outside, this is not going to be a happy evening. Although it will, just like last week, it will be good for us and particularly good in helping us appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you're not a Christian and just kind of listening in to this, it might start helping you see why Christians are so excited about Jesus and want to share him with others. 1 and 2 Samuel is a book that gets us longing for Jesus um, right at our core. Just before I pray as we begin, I want to say that um, cries for justice, I think are some of the deepest cries of the human heart. They're certainly some of the earliest, aren't they? I thought it was a, I thought it was a kind of cliche that, um, that young children always say, it's not fair, it's not fair, but they actually do. I've now got um, two children under five and that does seem to come out very often and not taught by us, but it just seems to be in there. It's not fair. And obviously they're often fighting and complaining and crying about things that aren't that important. Who got to go first in the game? Uh, who gets a particular bit of food? But as we grow on in life... We still cry for justice, but start to cry about really serious things. Serious wounds, serious wrongs. It's been striking recently the number of families in the news who are seeking justice for unsolved uh, murders, for unsolved accidents, seeking justice, who is responsible after decades of pain. The cry for justice comes from deep within the human heart. Striking, actually, because it doesn't actually make any sense if there's no God. If this universe is just material stuff, if we're just bags of chemicals bumping into each other, just selfish genes trying to replicate, well, then categories like right and wrong, like good and evil, like justice and injustice, well, they shouldn't really hold any significance beyond kind of human conventions, beyond kind of keeping society ticking. But we all feel them deeper than that. They visceral significance. That's because, as the Bible explains, humanity are made in God's image. We are made with an inbuilt sense of right and wrong, an inbuilt sense of morality, albeit a warped one now that we've fallen, but we do still feel injustice deeply. If you've ever been deeply wronged by someone, wounded by another, or if you've cared for someone who has, you'll know that. There can be a deep sense of anguish a driving determination to see things put right, to see justice done. And in today's section of 2 Samuel, we're going to see multiple terrible crimes. The kingdom of David, which was supposed to be the kingdom of God, has now become an appalling mess. David's own household is going to descend into depravity and chaos and conflict and eventually civil war. Let me pray for help, therefore, help to concentrate, help to cope emotionally, and help to see through the, the pain of these chapters to the wonderful promise of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Oh Father, we do thank you, as we did last week, that your word does not pretend that everything is okay in this world, but shows us that it's not, and points us to a solution. We pray this evening that you would give us um, strength of mind to understand what you're saying here. We pray that as we grieve over David's sin and the effect on his family and his kingdom, we pray particularly for those who are already grieved in their own lives from issues of injustice or abuse of power or sexual sin. We pray that you would comfort them and we pray for all of us that you would lift our eyes to appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, please do have your Bibles open in front of you. Um, It will be a huge help as we um, cover this material. Um, My plan tonight is to summarize the tragic story of David's family tearing itself apart, to summarize it in three steps. Firstly, the appalling consequences of King David's sin. The appalling consequences. And secondly, the tragic compromise of his justice. And then thirdly, the fitting curse of the king's exile. So We've got consequences, compromise, curse. As we're going to go through that story, we'll pause a couple of times to show how it makes us long for Jesus. But Let's begin with the first one. Um, and again, outline on the back if you want to follow. So firstly, the consequences of King David's sin. Now, if you were here last week, you will have seen David's um, forced adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, her husband. And God warned that there would be terrible fallout from that in David's family. And it is horrible to watch, because we're going to see how David's sons are a chip off the old block. They're going to repeat his crimes, both both in, um, in lust and in murder. God has warned that David's house is now going to be filled with the evil that he's begun, and that's exactly what happens. And the first tragedy comes in chapter 13. Chapter 13 has the rape of Tamar. It's it's one of the most grim episodes in the whole of Scripture. In verse 2, the passage initially says that Amnon, David's son, loves Tamar, but it's pretty clear that this is just unbridled lust, like his father. Verse 2, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. That doesn't sound like true love, and it pretty clearly, it becomes clear pretty quickly that it's not. He gets the help of his cousin to, to come up with a plan to get Tamar alone so he can have his way. And if you look in verse 7, it's really hideous because he exploits her kindness and her obedience to King David. She has to provide food to look after him when he's seriously ill. And then verse 9, to isolate her, he asks everyone to leave. And of course, because he's the king's son, they all do. There's the abuse of his position of authority. Then verse 11, he seizes the opportunity. Come lie with me, my sister. And at that point, she reminds him what an awful, awful thing he's suggesting. Verse 12, she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. Verse 13, she points out the consequences for her. As for me, where could I carry my shame? The consequences for him. As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel and she even gives him a way out now therefore please speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you but verse 14 he would not listen to her and being stronger than she he violated her and lay with her it's appalling it's horrific as with the crime with bathsheba it's described briefly there's there's nothing gratuitous here but it's utterly horrific That short phrase, being stronger than her, is true politically, socially, and physically. He overpowers her. It's horrendous. And just when you think things can't get any worse than that, it does. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he would loved her. So much for love. This is sinful lust. And sinful lust... Wrongly indulged, quickly turns to hatred, whether self-loathing or or loathing of the person. Amnon said to her, get up, go. Again, Tamar is the voice of truth, trying to flag up to, to him and to us what's happening, the horror of what's happening. Verse 16, she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me, but he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus are the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Then Absalom takes her in, and the end of verse 20, Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. Tamar's life is is ruined. The sin of David has been repeated by his son Amnon, but even worse. It's the first terrible consequence of David's sin. The sin of the father is now repeated more horrifically. It's really sobering this, because we did see that when David acknowledged his sin in chapter 12, that God did put away his sin he did say that David would not have to die even though he deserved to die but the sobering lesson of this chapter is that even when sin has been forgiven there can still be consequences repercussions in someone's life and relationships it's actually true in adultery With the help of Jesus Christ, there can be real repentance, real forgiveness, real reconciliation, even healing over time, but there is always still damage, pain on the way. In God's universe, actions always matter, and some terrible actions have terrible consequences. And the consequences of David's example to his son's, And his actions with Uriah and Bathsheba are terrible, appalling to witness. Not just David as a father, of course, but David as a king. So his actions don't just affect his family, they affect the whole nation. And at this point, we're going to see the second aspect to David's downfall, which is the tragic compromise of the king's justice. It's not just the the king's sin has consequences, it's the king's justice is now compromised. We saw that actually in the first reading. Just um, have a look at chapter 13, verse 21. When David hears these things, he's very angry. Of course he would be. What, What father wouldn't be angry? What king wouldn't be angry? And yet, David does nothing. And it's not that he didn't have all the facts. Look at how verse 21 makes it clear. He heard of all these things. He hears of the rape, the hatred, the abandonment of Tamar. But there's no trial, no punishment, no reckoning for Amnon. No mention of protection or provision for Tamar from David. It's just horrendous. The compromised king is no longer protecting his people, even his own daughter. He's not enacting justice. Now, if you think I'm reading a lot into just the silence of one verse, we're actually going to keep seeing this happen. It's a pattern through these chapters. And this is actually flagged up by the author as one of the major themes of this section. Um, so please just turn with me to chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. We will need to do a little bit of turning tonight. Um, chapter 8, verse 15. This is the first bracket around this big section that we're in, um, chapters 9 to 20. And um, just listen to this summary of David's kingdom before uh, Bathsheba and Uriah have happened. Chapter 8, verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Then we hear about Joab, uh, the leader of the army, and Jehoshaphat, the recorder, and we hear about the civil service with the secretary and the priests. It's a kind of summary of David's kingdom, and the heading is, David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now keep a finger there and turn to chapter 20, verse 23. Chapter 20, verse 23, on page 273. This is the closing bracket of the section. It's another summary of what's going on in David's kingdom. And see if you notice anything that's missing as I read the whole summary. Verse 23 of chapter 20. Now, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud was the recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jerite, was David's priest. There's one addition, forced labor. There's one subtraction. Did you notice it wasn't headed by David administered justice and equity to all his people? Everything else is the same. He's still got an army, still got a civil service, still got a priesthood, no longer has justice. Why was it that David did nothing when it came to Amnon's sin? Did he have a soft spot? Was, was he, he, he loved it, Amnon too much to hold him accountable. Could be that. That's what it was with Eli right at the back of start of 1 Samuel, right at the start of the book. Is it because the crime is so close to home he recognizes his own sin in Amnon's crime, feels like a hypocrite to punish him? We're not told why, but it's very clear that the king did nothing. Compromised justice in Israel and so the appalling horrendous tragedy of Tamar goes utterly unresolved that inaction from David then triggers the next scene in this in this downfall of a family it opens the door to Absalom the brother of Tamar and Amnon to to plot revenge just as in David's life sexual sin led to a murder well, now Absalom starts to hatch plans to murder his brother Amnon. He's going to isolate him. He wants to get him out of the town so he can kill him in cold blood. First, he comes to the king, chapter 13, verse 24. If you turn back there, thirteen twenty-four, He wants to, to take the whole royal family. David doesn't want to do that. And then verse 26, listen to this. Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. Now, King David is suspicious at this point. He realizes something might be up. I mean, why on earth, as David asks, why should he go with you? David suspects that it's a bit odd that Absalom, who's housing Tamar in his home, suddenly wants Amnon to come with him on a field trip. But actually, listen to what happens next, verse 27. But Absalom pressed David until he let Amnon and all the kings go with him. But did you notice that? David knew something that was up, but he did nothing to protect his children. And sure enough, Absalom's plan goes ahead, verse 29, as he kills his brother by his servants. Just as God had warned in chapter 12 after the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, the sword will not depart now from David's house. The appalling consequences of David's sin are starting to multiply Now what Absalom does here is wrong. A cold-blooded ambush and murder is not how justice is supposed to be done in God's kingdom. It's not the law of Israel. So how does the king respond? He does nothing. Again. In fact, the narrator wants us to notice that. Just look at chapter 13, verses 34 to 38. And listen to how many times we're told that Absalom does a runner. Verse 34. But Absalom fled. And David does nothing, no search party. Then verse 37 but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. David doesn't send anyone to bring him to justice. David seems to be lost in his private grief. And then verse 38, a third time we get the same point. Absalom fled, went to Geshur, was there three years. Three years? No one bringing him to justice. In fact, when David does want to bring him back, it's because he wants to see him again, not hold him accountable. Why did David not bring Absalom to justice? Was it because he knew that it was his failure to do justice with Amnon that caused this? Was it because he remembered, David, that he once had hatched a plan to kill a man in cold blood by the hands of his servants? Whatever reason it is, David does nothing because the justice of his kingdom is compromised. Because the sinful king is compromised. It's grim. But the descent into chaos and and evil and suffering doesn't end there. Absalom now goes on to build a conspiracy against David, to, to grab the throne for himself. And we definitely don't have time for all the ins and outs about how Absalom tricks his way back to Jerusalem and then schemes his way into the hearts of the people. Although interestingly, do you know what he says? He, he, he stands by the, the town gate when, when people are coming in to try and have um, disputes resolved. They're coming looking for justice. And Absalom stands at the gate and says, Ah, do you know what? David hasn't got any way of giving you justice. If only I was king, I could provide it. And David doesn't deal with the growing problem in his own house, in his own kingdom. We're actually told that Absalom was back in Jerusalem for two years with David doing nothing, just keeping him at arm's length, but not bringing him to justice. And then by the time we get to the middle of chapter 15, if you turn there, uh, it's too late by then. By the middle of 15, this coup has gathered so much momentum that it can't be stopped. David has to flee the city, flee the throne, run for his life. His most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, is defected to Absalom. It looks like it's all over for David. And finally, finally, in chapter 16, the house of David hits rock bottom. Just look on to chapter 16, verse 22, and the very first thing that, that Absalom does to prove his authority, to show that he's the new king in town. What does he do? Verse 22. They pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in all the sight of Israel. David's sin that started with seeing Bathsheba on a roof ends here. Absalom more sexual sin, more abuse of power. As Nathan the prophet warned, the consequences of David's sin are awful. They, they reverberate around his household and his kingdom. It's utterly grim. We've now seen rape and murder and conspiracy. In fact, we saw that in chapter 11 with David. Now we've seen it all through his family. It's worth taking a step back to, to realize how desperate this is. I mean, I know that's grim just to hear it, but, but I know this isn't the first political dynasty that suffered from infighting or suffered from sexual sin or suffered from brutality. That actually happens a lot if you look around the world. We've even seen this weekend that David is not the first leader or the last leader to betray his family and his nation and face the consequences But the thing is, this is supposed to be a different kingdom. This isn't any old kingdom. This is supposed to be the kingdom of God. It's supposed to be the house of David where where God's made his promises. It's supposed to be the place where you can look for justice and look for hope and peace. A place where people could live safely, knowing right from wrong and being protected by a king. But here we are in 2 Samuel. The king began the rot did nothing to stop the rot and now can do nothing as he's exiled, unable to protect his own household from Absalom's abuse. And we're in no doubt that it's not going to get better with Absalom. It's not like the next guy is going to be better, a breath of fresh air. He's already proving himself to be even more brutal, deceptive and dangerous than his father. And so as you read through this section... I think we're definitely crying, it is not fair. Where is the justice? Where is the righteous king we were hoping for? Is there any hope for a righteous king? Is there any chance of justice? Can someone be found who is uncompromised, uncorrupted, not just for the first eight chapters of their reign, up to 2 Samuel 8, but for the whole of their reign? A king who never has a bad day. Is there someone whose the summary of their kingdom could be that they administer justice and equity for all of their people all of the time? David's final words in the book of 2 Samuel actually prophesy someone like this. He says finally, O oh for one who rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like a morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That is the book ends saying, oh for a sunrise to break into this darkness, oh for rain to, to, to come into this desert, oh for a righteous ruler, one who rules in the fear of the Lord. A king with real moral integrity. A king with such perfect righteousness that he doesn't leave vulnerable, wronged people like Tamar isolated and ignored. A king who doesn't leave people like Amnon and Absalom unpunished, unaccountable. Oh, for a righteous king. The one who has enough personal integrity to be a consistent judge. How we long for a better king than David. And in lots of ways, that captures the whole storyline of 1 and 2 Samuel, the whole contribution of 1 and 2 Samuel to, to the story of the Bible. See, this, these books, they picked up in the time of the judges in Israel's history. And the time of the judges was grim. Uh, the summary, the repeated refrain in the book of Judges is that, is that everyone did what is right in their own eyes. And it turns out, if you look in Judges, that when everyone does what is right in their own eyes in a society, It's grim. The strong take advantage of the weak. By the end of Judges, the back end of Judges, there is brutal sexual violence going on and a civil war kicking off. And it seemed then that maybe a king would help. That's the refrain. Everyone did what was evil in their own eyes. Sorry, everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. And so we were really hoping if we just got a king to protect the weak, to say what's right and wrong, to hold people to justice, well, then things will be okay. Except if the king is like Saul, it's not going to be okay. And if the king is like David, it's not going to be okay. And definitely if the king's like Absalom, it's not going to be okay. You see, if the king himself does what is right in his own eyes, the king doesn't fear God, well, then they'll do more harm than good because their sin reverberates across the kingdom. And so... All for a righteous king. A king you can trust. A king who never serves self over others. A king who is not a take, take, taker from his people. Or in other words, at this stage in salvation history, praise God for Jesus Christ. Thank God for a king who has no 2 Samuel 11 kind of chapter in his life. Nothing like Bathsheba, Uriah. Jesus' own friend said no deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't even tell a lie. And because there's no chapter like that in his life, therefore there are no chapters like these in his kingdom. It's told at the end of the Bible that there will be no more crying or mourning in Jesus' kingdom for the former things have passed away. If that's right though, if, if King Jesus is the king of total righteousness and if he is going to bring a kingdom of absolute justice, well then what's going on right now? Because King Jesus has come, that's what Christians say, but it's very clear from the world and even the church that sin and evil still runs amok, scandal after scandal. Well Jesus was really clear, there is going to be a future day when he does absolute justice. When he holds every single person accountable to his perfect standards. And the time we're living in now isn't a sign of his indifference or his compromise or his moral ambiguity, but is a sign of his patience. He's giving people a chance to find forgiveness before we face the judgment throne of God. And I think one of the things that reading through 2 Samuel has has done for me is to long for that day to come sooner one of the cries of the bible come lord jesus come and bring justice come and stop the weak being trampled come and stop the strong seeming to sin with impunity come lord jesus this is a book that causes us to long for a righteous king and to long for his day of righteous justice but just before i close i want to say one more thing so take a deep breath if you've begun to drift. I want to say one more thing, because it's all very well saying that a perfect king is going to bring perfect justice. But where does that leave David? Someone who is stuffed up so badly. Through the wrong things he has done, through the good things he has not done, in thought, in word, indeed is there any hope for someone like david a sinner by extension is there any hope for us because we may not have acted out every crime we often didn't have the power that david had we haven't hit every failure on his list but we have certainly given in to temptation to lust to deception to anger to inaction when we knew what the right thing to do was Is there any hope for a sinner like David? And by extension, me or you. And if there is hope, like if God's willing to have David back, well then where's the justice? Because his crimes are awful. His victims are real. His life is is stained by his deeds. It's unrighteous before a holy God. So how could a holy God ever declare this man righteous again? Ever before him? Well, to answer this briefly, we're going to look at the third thing about King David's downfall, the deserved curse of King David's downfall. This will be briefer. Um, But we are going to see an amazing thing, so it's worth tuning in. We'll pick up the story on page 267 in chapter 15. I've called this the curse of David's exile, and we're going to see David take a journey. And as you listen to that journey, I want you to listen for a similar journey that Jesus Christ took. Let me pick up, chapter 15, verse 13. That's the moment when David has to, um, has to leave town. He's told that the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So King David is rejected by most of Israel. He decides there's nothing for it but to leave the city with his motley crew of followers. It's a really moving moment. He, 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 he knows that he's going down a path of suffering and rejection. He offers them, his followers, the chance to turn back. Um, there's this new guy, verse 20, Ittai. He says, look... You don't have to come with me. You've only just joined. And verse 21, Itai says, As the Lord lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for life or death, there also will your servant be. And then verse 23, just look at the grief. All the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook with Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. So here King David, he's weeping. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's rejected by most of Israel, and he's got a small group of followers around him, and he crosses over the Kidron Brook. Then he sends the priests back into the city, and if you look on to verse 30 of chapter 15, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. The king now is weeping on the Mount of Olives. He's rejected, forsaken, exiled. And then finally, to add insult to in, injury, in chapter 16, he faces the mocking scorn of a passerby. Just flick across, chapter 16, verse 5. Um, this man Shemai comes and, and curses him. Verse 6, he throws stones at him, 16:6. 6, um, and And he says as he cursed, verse 7, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. And the end of the verse, see your evil is on you, you're a man of blood. Now David's followers want to kill him, but just look at David's response. Verse 10, if he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? Verse 11, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. And so this walk is a lonely one, rejected, exiled, weeping, scorned, facing the curse of God. And David knows he deserves it. We know, as readers, he deserves it. We kind of expect this to be the end of the story. He's kicked out of town, driven out of town, under the curse of God, rejected. And yet, if you read on in 2 Samuel, actually from now on, God starts to work for David. Starts to act in his favor, actually restores him to, um, to the throne. He, um, he, uh, Absalom is defeated and David is, is brought back to Jerusalem. And the question is, if you've been following through all the crimes of David and the crimes of his family, the question is, how can it be that God doesn't give up on him? How can there be any hope for a man like David? Surely he deserves to be out of town, under curse, rejected by God. That's what he reckons. We were told that in chapter 12, David deserves to die told it in chapter 16, he deserves this curse. And yet, God shows him shocking, shocking grace and restores him to the throne. How can that be? Well, quite simply, because Jesus Christ, a thousand years later, paid the price for David. And one of the ways the Bible marks that out is that King Jesus took the same walk as David. He walked out of town. This is the night before his death. He walked out of Jerusalem. He crossed the Kidron Brook. John's Gospel tells us that explicitly. He climbed up the Mount of Olives. He wept and sweat drops of blood as he thought about the prospect of the cross. He faced scorn and mockery, and worst of all on the cross, he faced the prospect of God's curse. That is, to have God... Look at him, God the Father, look at him as a man of blood. And while David had every reason to be out of town weeping, Jesus had none. As the song we'll hear in a moment puts it, Jesus had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat blots drops of blood for mine. It answers the the question we've been crying out ever since Bathsheba and Uriah. How can God be for this man? How can God put away his sin? How can God forgive someone like that? Well, for one reason only, God knew that he himself would pay the price on that lonely walk to the cross. She actually explains why Jesus sweat drops of blood as he prayed that night to his father. Because Jesus, the pure, righteous son of God, the perfect, uncompromised king, knew that he'd be taking blood onto his hands, as it were. He, he would be paying for the rape of Bathsheba, paying for the murder of Uriah, paying for the lies, the conspiracy, the cover-up, the failure to enact justice, paying for David. And that's just David. He'd be paying for me and you if you're trusting Jesus and his cross. When Jesus speaks about drinking the cup of God's wrath, this is what it was full of. Facing the curse on David, on us, that we could have and he could have the hope of forgiveness. This morning we heard in Luke's Gospel that Jesus came not to congratulate the righteous, there aren't any, but to call sinners to repentance and forgiveness. Jesus came on a rescue mission for sinners. And tonight we're seeing what it cost as the righteous king took the place of the unrighteous king. As he walked in the footsteps of King Jesus... And walked in our footsteps, the path that we deserve to go, that we might have hope of forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you so much that there is a king who is upright and righteous, not just some of the time, not just most of the time, but all of the time. We praise you for a leader like King Jesus. We praise you too for the day of righteous justice that King Jesus will bring to this world. And we long for that day, we pray, come Lord Jesus. But most of all, we thank you that the Lord Jesus, though he had no sin of his own, was willing to become sin, that we might find forgiveness and so be safe on that final day. We thank you for your extraordinary good news of salvation, Lord, and we praise you for showing us it even into Samuel. In Jesus' name, Amen.